Our Heavenly Father, how great it is to be able to gather uh, once again this morning, um, coming to fellowship together to worship you through study and, and, um, and edification from your word. And I pray that that will be accomplished through the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would take um, all that I've prepared and, and put time into um, to um, facilitate that, that edification for the part of the body that's Fredericksburg Bible Church here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Glad to see you all this morning. We're, um, if you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 119, we're going to be looking at part of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, um, you may or may not know, has the distinction of being the longest chapter in the entire Bible. So it's going to take quite a few lessons to complete it. Uh, today's lesson is just uh, is going to be a, a, just a, a bite-sized portion. It's actually the third lesson that I've pre- presented from this psalm. The first was back in March, and it served as an introduction uh, to Psalm 119. The second lesson uh, was just in June, where we studied verses 1 through 8. And today we'll begin with verse 9 and continue through verse 16. Now obviously the psalm was not written in a vacuum. We should note that the identity of the author is not known for certain, nor is the nature of his circumstances. However, it is evident throughout the psalm that the author was enduring some type of heavy persecution. Persecution that ridiculed his beliefs and pressured him to abandon his faith. But in the face of this persecution, the psalmist finds strength and comfort in the word of God. And he serves as an example to us of a man that faithfully clings to the word of God while while enduring great personal difficulty. Looking at the beginning of the psalm, if you're open to Psalm 119, at the beginning there, do you notice something a little different about the arrangement of the verses in Psalm 119. Do you see how the verses seem to be arranged in sections? Note how verses 9 through 16 form a section unto themselves, separate and distinct from the first eight verses. When the author crafted Psalm 119, he purposefully divided it into separate sections known as stanzas. Each stanza contains eight verses, so verses 9 through 16 form the second of 22 total stanzas comprising Psalm 119. Above this second stanza, comprised of verses 9 through 16, you see a title that looks maybe something like a backward C, along with the word B-E-T-H, Or maybe it's just the letters B-E-T, depending upon your Bible translation. These letters form the English word that we assign to the Hebrew alphabet letter pronounced Beit. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The titles the author assigned to each of the 22 stanzas are the consecutive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the backward-looking C is actually Hebrew letter Beit, the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, 
and serves as the title of the second stanza. The first two stanzas of this lengthy psalm go together as a couplet because they form an introduction to the entire psalm. So before we study the second stanza in verses 9 through 16, let's quickly review the first stanza, verses 1 through 8. The theme of each stanza in Psalm 119 is often seen in the first verse of the stanza. So let's read verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So in verse 1, we observe that the theme of the first stanza has to do with blessing. A blessing upon those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. A blessing is also announced in verse 2. How blessed are those, or how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Our English word blessed comes from the Hebrew word ashrei. It means happy. So these two verses are proclaiming Happy are those, or happy is the one. Based on the meaning of key Hebrew words in verses 1 and 2, I took the liberty to offer these paraphrases of verses 1 and 2 in our previous lesson. Happy is the one, and again, these are just my paraphrases. Happy is the one whose pattern of conduct is marked by the instruction of the Lord. For verse 2, happy is the one who keeps the testimony of God's word, diligently studying it to discern his will. The outline from the first stanza serves as, ser serves as a summary. So in the first stanza, we saw the author, and here's the outline. announce that those who walk in wholehearted obedience to the law are blessed in verses 1 through 3. So in our simple outline here, I just put obedience brings blessing. We, we saw the author commit to obey God's law in verses 4 through 6. And we saw the author vow to thank God for what the author will learn from God's law in verses 7 and 8. So the simple outline for the first eight verses that we taught back in June. Point one, obedience brings blessing. Verses one through three. Point two, commitment to obedience. Verses four through six. And point three, thanksgiving for the law. Verses seven and eight. For an outline of the second stanza, we will see the author affirm that our lives are cleansed through devotion to the Word of God, declare that the Word of God is more valuable than earthly riches, and vow to esteem the Word of God and enjoy it. Verse 8 closed the first stanza with the author determined to keep the law of the Lord. The second stanza begins in verse 9 with the question of how one accomplishes this keeping of the law as pledged by the author in verse 8. 
Let's read the question as it is expressed in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Note that this question presents a young man as the subject, reflective of the type of rabbi-disciple relationship often seen in the Old Testament wisdom literature, particularly in the book of Proverbs. But even though this question is couched in terms of a young man, it, address, it is addressed to all disciples. You know, disciple just simply is a, is a term um, meaning one who is learning, one who um, is being instructed, um, um, a learner. We saw in our, English, in our English word way in the first stanza, Um, or, or we saw our English word way in the first stanza. We noted in verse 1 that the use of the Hebrew word for way indicated a path that was traveled and was a reference to the path or pattern of one's life. Now in verse 9, the word way also refers to a path, but this is a deep, different Hebrew word than the one used in verse 1. Dr. Alan Ross, in his commentary, suggests that the meaning of the Hebrew word used in verse 9 focuses on all of the activities of life. And in fact, the New English Translation Bible captures the meaning by using the words life, the word life, instead of way. How can a young person maintain a pure life? That's a, that's a, that's a, I like that translation, the N-E-T. Ross adds that the idea of keeping pure here is not requiring a life of sinlessness, but rather it's the idea of being acquitted from sin or from the tarnish of sin. My word study dictionary explains the meaning as being cleansed from sin. We church-age believers can relate to this idea. For though we are sinful, we have, been clean, we have been cleansed through Jesus Christ's cross-work atonement. And therefore, though we are not sinless, we are free from the penalty judgment of God's eternal wrath demanded because of our sin. So the rabbi is really asking this question. How can all of the activities of a disciple's life reflect that he is cleansed from sin? And the rabbi answers the question in the second half of verse 9. By keeping it according to your word. Our word keeping is derived from a Hebrew word meaning to keep, to guard, to watch over. This Hebrew verb is used in God's commission to Adam in the garden. Turn back, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. In verse 7 of chapter 2, God creates Adam, and in verse 8, God plants the Garden of Eden and places Adam in it. And in verse 15, God gives Adam this or gives Adam his commission. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. 
The commission for Adam to keep the garden is based on the same Hebrew verb translated keeping in the rabbi's question in verse 9 of Psalm 119. In the context of keeping the garden, the Hebrew verb is easy to understand. Adam was to watch over the garden, taking care of it as a steward on behalf of God. Think of a head groundskeeper. It's that type of responsibility. Now, in the Garden of Eden, pre-fall, Adam would not have had to concern himself with threats to its welfare. But in the post-fall world, a groundskeeper must guard against the effects of the fall, such as thorns, drought, flood, extreme temperatures, invasive species, disease, insects, and worst of all, armadillos. So back to Psalm 119, verse 9. Saying the disciple is to keep... Um, uh, so back in Psalm 119, 9, it's this type of watch care that the disciple is, is called upon to apply to what? What is the rabbi saying the disciple is to keep or to watch over. Well, the rabbi instructs the disciple to watch over it. And what is the it? Look at the rabbi's question in verse 9a, the first half of verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? It's the disciple's way that is to be kept pure. Now remember, his way refers to all of the activities of the disciple's life. Now, just a side note here. All the activities of, of, of life includes more than while we are at church on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. All of the activities means everything that makes up one's life 24-7. It's marriage, parenting, employment, business, civic duties, education, ethics, leisure activities as well as time gathered at church. It's all to be done as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.23 So the disciple is to guard all of the activities in his life if he wants to live as one cleansed from sin. Not sinless, but rather as one who is acquitted from sin, made righteous through God's grace. He guards his way by protecting and safeguarding his activities from all impurity. And the nature of his guarding is clarified in the end of the verse. Do you see how he is to guard his activities? According to your word. Word is one of the synonyms for the term law that occur throughout this psalm. You may recall that these synonyms are sometimes used to bring out subtle differences in the meaning of the term law while at other times the synonyms may just serve to avoid repetitive use of the term law. In verse 9, we have two reasons to conclude that it is God's word that is in mind here. One reason is that the personal pronoun your, Y-O-U-R, is capitalized, a grammatical technique applied to God only. A second reason we know that it is God's word, 
is that all of the verses in Psalm 119 are addressed to God, with the exception of only four verses, verses 1, 2, 3, and 115. As used in verse 9, word is derived from the Hebrew noun dabar, which in general means word, speech, or saying, either by a human or by God. While dabar is used in a variety of ways in the Old Testament, in our Psalm 119, it refers to the law of God, emphasizing the nature of God's law as a divine word or utterance. We also see dabar used in Exodus 34, 28 and Deuteronomy 4.13, where in the Hebrew, the Ten Commandments were literally, literally called the Ten Words of, God, of the Lord. In essence, what the rabbi is saying in verse 9 is this. Your life will reflect that you are acquitted from sin as you guard all of the activities of your life in the light of God's Word. So what does guarding one's activities according to, the, to God's word look like? Well, according to Alan Ross, it looks like this. And I quote, Guarding one's way would mean to protect or safeguard it from all sinfulness and impurity. It calls for a consistent diligence in applying the word of God to the activities of the day. And so the guarding is clarified with according to your word. Continuing on now in verses 10 and 11, the psalmist will, spec will specify what this guarding requires. Let's read verse 10. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. In verse 10, the author first specifies that the guarding of one's life's one's life's activities requires seeking God with all his heart, a phrase we also saw back in, in verse 2. This phrase, with all my heart, underscores the sincerity and the intensity with which he seeks God. We saw the phrase in verse 2, and I can still, vi and I can still vividly remember my high school football coaches halftime uh, pep talk um, about our team not playing with heart. Of course, what he was suggesting, and quite loudly I might add, was that we weren't playing with any passion or desire to win. And then once he had threatened us with torture drills, torturous drills and the dreaded wind sprints following the game, our team always seemed to gain heart for the second half. Coach was able to create an intensity in us that we came to understand as heart. And verse 10 tells us that it's with all his heart that the author has sought God. The Hebrew verb being translated sought in verse 10 is the same verb we saw back in verse 2 as seek. The most important theological meaning of this verb involves studying or inquiring into the law of the Lord. Now turn back to Ezra 7.10. Ezra chapter 7, 
verse 10. In Ezra 7.10, we see the same use of this Hebrew verb. It's the same, the same verb. And it reads, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. The Hebrew verb we see translated study in Ezra 7.10 is the same Hebrew verb in our Psalm 119, verse 10. That is translated sought. So when when Psalm 119.10 says that the author has sought you, it is saying that the author has studied and inquired of God. And note that his study and inquiry of God is performed through God's commandments. His prayer is that God would not let him wander from these commandments. The word commandments in verse 10 is based on the same Hebrew noun translated commandments in verse 6. This term commandments is one of the synonyms of the prominent law term that characterizes this psalm. In the Hebrew... It is in the plural plural here in verse 10, so it is alluding to the entire body of God's law and instruction. No doubt, the author is all too aware of his propensity to wander. This is a reality of our sinful human condition. Proverbs tells us in chapter 19, verse 27, that when we cease listening to instruction, we wander... From the words of knowledge. Pastor Robert Robinson knew this in 1758 when, at the age of 22, he wrote, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You may recognize Pastor Robinson's words from our hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Robinson penned the words that later were put to music to form the popular hymn. Because of our own propensity to wander, we can relate to the earnestness of the author in his petition to not let him wander. We as New Testament believers have the benefit of the indwelling Holy Spirit to enable us to live according to God's commandments, his word. And when we wander... We have the promise in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, God will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, restoring us to the position of fellowship with him in which we are spirit-led to conduct all of the activities of our lives in light of God's word. I like Warren Wiersbe's simple take on verse 10. We need a heart for God We need a heart that seeks God, for if our heart is seeking God, our feet will not stray from God. Well put. Wiersbe goes on to describe a heart that seeks God in this way. Such a heart will see him in all of life, learn more about him, fellowship with him, and glorify him in all that is said and done. Again, the Holy Spirit enables us to do this as we yield to him. 
But we must also spend time in the Word and treasure it in our hearts. End quote. The psalmist expresses this treasuring of God's Word in verse 11, where he writes, Your Word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Now that's in the New American Standard Bible translation. Many of us may be more familiar with the rendering of this popular verse as translated in the King James Version. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. And let's also see the verse in the New English translation, the NET. In my heart I store up your words, so I might not sin against you. Treasured, hid, and store up all or proper translation of the Hebrew word constructed, constructed from, the wor- from the word sapan, which means to hide, to keep secret. This verb is used for concealing something often of great value. Turn back, if you would, to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And verses 2 and 3. Which reads, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful... She hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him, uh, in a, she put him in a, a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Well, this is the account of the birth of Moses. And you'll recall that his Hebrew mother had to hide the baby Moses because the Egyptian pharaoh had decreed that all Hebrew males, um, male babies anyway, were to be put to death. Here in this Exodus passage, the Hebrew verb rendered hid and hide is the same verb in Psalm 119, verse 11. That gives us the English terms treasured, hid and stored up in the New American Standard Bible, the King James Version, and the New English Translation. Now, in the passage about baby Moses, obviously his mother was concealing something of great value, her baby. For the first three months of his life, anyway. And in Psalm 119.11... The author is likewise hiding something of great value, the Word of God. Now, I think the New English translation best expresses how the Word of God has become such an important part of the psalmist's life, as it reads, In my heart I store up your words. The idea being, the psalmist has learned and laid up God's valuable Word in his heart where it's always readily available to guard the activities of his life. 
Thomas Constable observes that the act of storing up God's Word refers to more than just Scripture memorization, as beneficial as memorization is. Constable expands the meaning to a holistic living in devotion to the Lord. Constable refer, references Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14 as an example of this type of living. But the word is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. God is addressing the nation of Israel in this verse, reminding the people that the word stored up in their minds has a purpose. This purpose being to observe it. And observing God's word is the purpose that the author of Psalm 119 verse 11 has in mind when he says, that I may not sin against you. In verses 9 through 11 of this stanza, the psalmist has affirmed that our lives are cleansed through devotion to the Word of God. So point one of our simple outline for this stanza is Word of God is cleansing. In verse 12, the tone transitions to that of praise. Verse 12 reads, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Bless, um, blessed here in verse 12 is derived from a different Hebrew verb than we saw back in verse 1 where it meant happy. In verse 12, our word blessed is based on the Hebrew verb barak, which lends the element of praise to our word blessed. The author's request in verse 12 is to learn more of God's statutes. And it's the same word used back in verses 5 and 8, where we noted that this was another one of the synonyms for the term law, emphasizing this time God's word as decrees or ordinances. Ordinances. Note that before he asks to be taught God's statutes, and, and this is important, before he asks to be taught God's statutes, he first praises God when he writes, Blessed are you, O Lord. This shows his proper regard for God, which is essential for a teachable spirit. We do well to approach our own opportunities for learning the Word of God in the same manner. On this note, I'd like to share this observation from William S. Plummer regarding the psalmist's request. Such petitions are a clear confession of great ignorance, darkness, and weakness on the part of the petitioner, together with a longing desire for instruction and guidance in the way of truth, duty, and safety. Such prayers are never unseasonable. Now here I've, I've magnified the reference citation just a little bit to reveal the year of the publication of the, this commentary on Psalms by Dr. Plummer. Do you see the date in blue? William S. Plummer uh, wrote this in 1872. Or at least that was the, the date of, of, the, of, of the publication of his commentary anyway. He probably wrote it even a little bit earlier than that. He was a, a well-known Presbyterian preacher and writer in the 1800s. 
He was schooled at Princeton Seminary and later served as professor at Columbia Theological Seminary. Dr. Plummer was a covenant theologian, so I have to filter some of his material, but he wrote a fairly exhaustive commentary on the Psalms that I um, like to occasionally reference. Reading the words of theologians a hundred plus years ago, I can't help but marvel at their intellect. And frankly, it's quite humbling to most of us today. Moving on to verse 13. The psalmist proclaims a natural result of learning God's word, sharing it with others. Look what he says. With my lips, I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. Ordinances of your mouth is referring to what God has spoken his word. Ordinances is another synonym for the term law used in this psalm to refer to God's word. The term ordinances is translated from the same Hebrew noun that in verse 7 was rendered judgments. This Hebrew noun means a legal decision. It's often translated laws in English. I suspect it was used in verse 13 to avoid repetitive use of the word law, you know, just to uh, use some different terms so it wasn't too repetitive. The phrase, with my lips, indicates that his has been a vocal proclamation of the word of God. He hasn't stored up God's word for the sake of merely making a collection. Rather, from his, this treasury in his heart, he has ministered to others by sharing spiritual truth. Now, I don't know the exact context in which he spoke the word of God to others. It just doesn't tell us. Perhaps it was before a group of worshipers. Um, but it could have also been in the privacy of a one-on-one -on -one setting. Was it something that he prepared for ahead of time? Or was it spur of the moment? Well, again, we just don't know from this passage. But I do know that each of us, too, can share biblical truth that we have stored up in our hearts. You might be thinking, well, you know, I'm not gifted as an evangelist or a Bible teacher. But, you know, opportunities for sharing often arise in those unplanned, one-on-one, -on -one, teachable moments. These everyday opportunities don't require the spiritual gift of teacher or evangelist. Such opportunities might take place between a parent and child, or between friends, or between co-workers. And when they do, no one is in a better position to share God's word at that moment and with that person. While the unbeliever doesn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when hearing God's word, God might be using the Holy Spirit to draw the unbeliever to himself through hearing biblical truth. A believer with a storehouse of God's word is a steward of this truth. So we should be sensitive to opportunities to share it with others. Like the psalmist, we must pray to learn and store up his, this truth. And as we do, we will have reason to rejoice as the psalmist proclaims in verse 14. He says in verse 14, 
I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. The word way is used in verse 1 of this psalm. The same Hebrew noun appears in verse 14 as well. In verse in both verses, 1 and 14, it refers to a pathway, which in this case is a metaphor for the pattern of one's life. So the author has rejoiced in the pattern of life that has been established by keeping it in accordance with God's testimonies, His Word. I think the New English translation better captures the sentiment. Here's how it reads in the NET. I rejoice in the lifestyle prescribed by your rules. And look at the value the author places on God's testimonies that he has laid up. As much value as in all riches. This would explain why he is com- he's compelled to proclaim God's word to others. In verses 12 to 14 of this Baith stanza, we see the psalmist place such a high value on the word of God that he is moved to learn it and share it with others. So point two of our simple outline for this stanza is word of God is valuable. Verse 15 reads, I will meditate on your precepts and guard your ways. We note that the psalmist resolves to do two things. One, to meditate on God's precepts and two, to, uh, to regard God's ways. We can be a little uncomfortable with the term meditate. And rightly so, because it's of its connection that's often used to New Age spiritualism. But that's not at all how the term is being used here in verse 15. Here, meditate carries the sense of the psalmist being instructed in in God's precepts, which, remember, is another synonym for God's law, his word. And this instruction is received with thanks and praise. Interestingly, the Hebrew verb being translated meditate can refer to a loud and enthusiastic form of speaking. And so some commentators suggest that in the context of this stanza, the author may be speaking or even singing to himself in his joy over God's word. So true meditation is about instruction and joyful thankfulness and praise to God for his word. And such biblical meditation is totally appropriate for the psalmist and for the rest of us as well, that matter. Having resolved to meditate on God's precepts, the psalmist next resolves to regard God's ways. It's a resolution to, to give his attention to his to fix his gaze, we might say, upon God's word. We can better appreciate these two resolutions in verse 15 when we remember that he is committing himself to God's word while in the midst of experiencing some great personal difficulty in his life. Is our first reaction when trials come 
come along and arise in our lives? Is, is, is it to, to um, com- commit ourselves to God's Word? To go to the Word of God for divine viewpoint? Or are we quick to take matters into our own hands and seek resolution from our flawed human viewpoint? The psalmist knows to go to the Word of God when under trial. He knows the faith rest drill. I've heard the faith rest drill taught a number of times in my 36 years in Fredericksburg Bible Church, and it's worth a quick review now. When faced with a trial, it provides a sequence of steps to go through based on promises from the Word of God. And it goes something like this. The first step is to recall scriptural truth from a verse or from a passage that relates to the trial at hand. There may be more than just one. The treasury of God's word that you have stored up in your heart is your go-to source here because you can quickly recall it. Now, if your treasury hasn't been built up enough yet, then other sources like maybe a concordance or the wise counsel of someone else may be in order. The recall step allows you to stop a minute, realize, hey, God's word addresses what I'm going through. Once you have recalled the scriptural promise, then step two is to connect that promise to your trial. In other words, bring the scriptural promise of your trial Uh, bring the scriptural promise to your trial and see how it applies. This is the time to recognize the worthlessness of human viewpoint and to regard God's divine viewpoint. And when you've done this, you can feel encouraged that help is on the way. Having recalled and connected, step three of the faith rest drill is to trust in God's promise that you have applied that you have applied to your trial. This trust allows you to take a deep breath and be confident that God is with you in this. Your faith is being exercised, and you can anticipate that it will be strengthened as a result of God bringing you through this trial. And once you are in a position to trust, you can then relax. You can rest in the middle of the trial mindful of his promises to us and the wonderful attributes of our God that, he, that we have as his children. And let me start that over. You can rest in the midst of the trial, of the trial mindful of his promises to us and the wonderful astri- attributes of our God that we as his children rest in. And that's the faith rest drill. Through meditation on, in God's word in verse 15, the psalmist brings joyful thankfulness and praise to God. This carries on into verse 16, where he anticipates delight in God's word. Let's read verse 16. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. This is the fourth time the term statutes 
has been used in the first two stanzas as a synonym for the term law. It brings out the idea of God's word being decrees or ordinances. Delight is rendered from a Hebrew verb whose root means to take delight in, to enjoy oneself. Friday night, my wife Suzanne and I enjoyed a steak dinner at a local restaurant. Now, I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed myself because I took delight in consuming the steak. My enjoyment came from satisfying my hunger with that wonderful, medium-rare cut of grilled beef. Admittedly, that's a rather base application for the word delight, but in verse 16, the author elevates the application to its highest form, finding delight in satisfying his spiritual hunger with the nourishment of God's word. The author expresses such delight, such enjoyment for God's word, when he wrote in verse 103 of the same psalm, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And the delight he finds in the word of God leads him to proclaim next, I shall not forget your word. No one wants to forget a source of riches. In this case, it's the rich treasury of God's word in his heart. I'll never forget on the first day of a college economics class, my professor presented us with a question. The question was, what makes the price of a diamond so much more expensive than the price of a choice stake? Well, none of us neophyte freshmen could answer the question, so he gave us the answer just before class concluded that first day. The answer, he told us, had to do with the concept of decreasing rate of return. You see, with steak, after the first few bites, the palatability begins to decrease ever so little with each successive bite until you finally get to the point where you are miserable because you are so stuffed. And that's what happened to me Friday night. But the rate of return from a diamond does not diminish. The diamond continues to bring us the delight the, to bring us delight over a lifetime. We, we never tire of it. Well, the psalmist has found an enduring delight in the Word of God, and that delight he is not prone to forget. In verses 15 to 16 of this bait stanza, we've seen the psalmist vow to esteem the Word of God and enjoy it. So point three of our simple outline for the stanza is... Word of God to be esteemed and enjoyed. Warren Wiersbe developed a list from throughout Psalm 119 of a dozen ministries of the Word of God in the life of the devoted believer. The first three on his list in today, are in today's Baith stanza. Let's review them. In verse 9, the psalmist in the, in the role of a rabbi asks the question, how can a young disciple live his life as one cleansed from sin? And the rabbi's answer is to guard your life from impurity by obeying the word of God. 
This is the word of God's ministry of keeping us clean. The ministry of the word of God in verse 11 is helping us establish our values. This involves storing up the word of God as a priceless treasury that can be drawn on at any moment. Giving us joy is the ministry of the word of God brought out in verse 14 where the psalmist writes that he rejoices in the way of God's word. As application to us New Testament believers, this Baith stanza teaches us to treasure up God's word, to share it with others, to read it with joyful thankfulness and praise to God, and then by his grace through the filling of the Holy Spirit, to live it. In closing, I want to remind you that both the Alpha stanza and the Baith stanza are a couplet forming a prologue to the entire psalm. So, taken together, we see a theme that introduces this longest chapter of the Bible. It's a theme of blessing for obedience to God's law, but, it's, but it also includes the issue of cleansing one's ways. And this couplet theme of blessing and cleansing is developed further throughout the remainder of the chapter. Now, for any in our audience, either here or through the technology of live stream or reproduction of that in the future, um, I want to come back in closing to that, I, this concept of cleansing. You know, as, as um, is the case with all of us as fallen humans, um, none of us meet the qualification of, of, of righteousness, of, of sinlessness. Paul reminds us of this in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 3.10, Paul refers to the book of Psalms, stating that, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And again, in Romans 3.23, Paul tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, that's the bad news. That God, only God is blameless. But now comes the good news. This is why the fact that only God is blameless and we're, none of us are in and of ourselves, this is why Jesus Christ had to become incarnate, meaning God became a man. No other man was unblemished. No other man would be an acceptable sacrifice that could pay the penalty for our sin in the way of atonement. God the Father needed to provide the unblemished sacrifice on our behalf in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the good news. That the sacrifice, that the, the sacrifice has been provided for us out of God's grace. And we must only trust in the sacrifice provided. All right, let's close this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for 
this tremendous wealth of, of your truth that you have um, left for us in your Holy Scripture. Um, just eight, eight short verses, but really packed um, with a lot for us to learn from. And um, it, along with the first stanza, Olive, um, kind of whet our appetite for proceeding forward in, at some point, the book of, or the chapter of Psalm 119. Um, we understand, um, I think, a little better the value of obedience to our lives. Not that it's a requirement for our Our, our salvation um, in terms of forgiveness of sin because it's not. But in our, in our sanctification, obedience, obedience um, just really makes things a lot easier in this life and uh, helps us to enjoy every moment you give us all that much more. And so my prayer, Father, is that we... we um, Value, we, we learn from this, this short stanza today that we are to value your word um, and in obedience to it we are blessed and um, that we have been forgiven if we have trusted in the sacrificial death on the cross of your son, our Savior Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins that we deserve to have to pay but couldn't. And that once we're in that position, that we are then able to go in kind of a second phase of, of our salvation, which is living life on this earth with whatever number of days you have for us left. And growing and maturing and enjoying ourselves, as the psalmist said here in our stanza today. And we just thank you for all that. What, 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 what grace we see in it. Um, what provision for us, what protection for us we see. All praise, glory, and honor go to you. And we pray in Jesus' name.